Then let's ask the Lord for a, prayer, uh, for a blessing upon the reading of his word. So we pray. Merciful God and Heavenly Father, as we open your word now, may its light shine into the darkness of our hearts, illuminating every corner, exposing not only, Lord, the darkness that lives therein, but sanctifying, cleansing our hearts and our lives, our souls and our spirits, so that everything we do may be in the praise of your name and the glory of your name. Hear us, O Heavenly God and Father, and answer our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me then to Isaiah 52. We're going to read just the verses 13 through 15. I know that I had indicated earlier that we were going to have 1 Samuel 21 uh, on the docket, but then thinking about it and realizing that it would only be one 1 Samuel sermon as we entered into a Lenten series for March as we anticipate the coming of Easter. It seemed better to begin the Lenten service now and leave 1 Samuel till after. Now first, or Isaiah 52, rather, the verses 13 uh, to 15 are the beginning of the servant song that we f- are so familiar with uh, in Isaiah 53. We're not going to read the whole servant song. We just need to read uh, the verses 13 and through 15. Uh, but it is the rest of the servant song that is, will also be in view or be uh, brought into our consideration. And especially verse 7, if I could just get you to look over No, it's not on the screen, but on verse 7 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We'll see something of that in a moment. But first, Isaiah 52, the verses 13 through 15. Hear the word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now notice in verse 15 the word sprinkle. Just keep that word. So shall he sprinkle. Keep that word in your mind. As we turn to Mark chapter 15, gospel according to Mark chapter 15, we're going to read the first 15 verses. As Jesus is delivered to Pilate, and then Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up again, and it began rather to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? 
And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now look back to verse 5. But Jesus made no further answer, like a sheep before its shears is silent, so that Pilate was amazed. Our text this morning is that word, amazed. May the Lord add his blessing now to this word. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, we all want to be amazed. We all want to stand in awe, to have our hearts filled with a wonder and a marvel, to see a beautiful sunset, and in that moment to stand in awe, to hold a newborn child in our arms, and in that moment to stand in awe, to see something of such remarkable beauty, to see such something of such remarkable intricacy and glory, so that our souls are lifted and we are Amaze. That is what we all desire. Indeed, so much of our world chases after those things. So much of our world is seeking after. Indeed, because they can't find these things, they turn to drugs. They turn to LSD. And, and they experience this sense of wonder and amazement that they cannot find anywhere else. Precisely because their soul craves it. They want to be amazed. We want to be amazed. Well, we have an opportunity to be amazed today. In our text from Mark 5 or 15 verse 5, where Pilate stands amazed, the gospel writer Mark, and probably behind him the apostle Peter, give to us a glorious reason to be amazed. Now, just a note before we dive into the text, and this is a note that will cover all of the Lenten sermons that we will have in anticipation of Easter. That note is that um, there are Various ways in which the New Testament scriptures refer to or connect with the Old Testament scriptures. There are lots of times, for example, in scripture where you read in the New Testament, this was done to fulfill, indeed on the cross of Calvary, Jesus will say, I thirst, and there will be then in brackets in our Bible that the scriptures might be fulfilled. A note that reminds us that this has something to do with that, that you ought to see the Old Testament passage being referenced and the New Testament fulfillment as intimately connected. You might say putting an equal sign between this passage and that passage. These two things go together, say the Word of God. But there are other ways in which the New Testament references the Old Testament. Sometimes the New Testament is a little more subtle. It doesn't say this is a fulfillment of that but says something that makes you go back into the Old Testament to review it. You think about Jesus' words on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those are taken from Psalm 22. Now if you read Psalm 22, if you're working through the Bible from beginning to end, you haven't come to Jesus' cry on the cross yet when you hit Psalm 22. And when you hit Psalm 22, you think you understand what David's saying. You go, well, I can make sense of this. And then you keep reading and you come to Jesus' cry and you go, wait a minute. That's not what I thought. And you're sent back to Psalm 22, which opens up a whole new vista for you that makes you understand the cross of Calvary even more gloriously. 
what the writers are doing is they're, you might say, drawing a dash, not an equal sign, a dash between these two events with arrows on each end of that dash so that to understand this event, you've got to understand that. And to understand that, you've got to understand this. And there's this interplay between new and old. There are also allusions. Some of the ways in which the New Testament deals with the Old Testament by way of allusion. The book of Revelation is actually the book that does this most. There are no equal signs in the book of Revelation. That is, there is no quoting Revelate, Old Testament scriptures, but there is the vast, or the most allusions to Old Testament passages are found in the book of Revelation compared to any other book of the New Testament. And an allusion is a word or a phrase or even an idea that reminds you of, that connects you to, that links you with something in the Old Testament. It's not saying this is the fulfillment of that. It's not saying this is something you need to understand in order to understand this. It's saying there's a connection here you need to wrestle with. Well, that's exactly what we're going to do. The word amaze, amazed in our Bible, is an allusion to an Old Testament passage. We read it, Isaiah 52, verse 15. It's the word sprinkled. You say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. The word sprinkled and amazed are two different words. Well, there's one other thing you need to know about the use of the New Testament's uh, references to the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't always quote the Hebrew Old Testament. A lot of times it quotes the Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, sometimes written as LXX, Roman numerals, which means 70. It's a lovely story. You can Google it on how the Septuagint came about. A lovely myth about how the Septuagint came about. Go ahead and read that. It just means 70. And that's the Bible that's often quoted in the New Testament. And that's quoted here in our text. Or alluded to in our text. When it says that Pilate was amazed. With those introductory comments we can begin. That Pilate was amazed should be to us not surprising. I mean, Pilate was the governor of Judea, the Roman emperor. His choice for the ruler, for the sovereign, for the applier of Roman might and power within this backwater, within this troublesome place where a firm hand was needed. And Pilate was a firm hand. He was a cruel, cruel man. He was a tyrant of the first order, even as he was an extremely weak man, an immoral man, a man who couldn't stand on his own two feet. Such a ruler, such a governor, uh, creates a certain context, a certain expectation within his community with those he rules over. And you can imagine that when people are brought before this cruel tyrant, this man of great immorality, when they are brought before him with death hanging over their heads, that they would do anything and everything in the hope that they could deliver themselves from this governor, this immoral man. Maybe they can bribe him. Maybe they can offer him something that he would want. You can imagine that as the condemned stood before the governor, they would plead and cry out and beg for their life. Pilate would have heard everything from everybody. And indeed, Pilate at this moment isn't particularly keen on giving in to the request of the Jews. They've brought Jesus to be killed and Pilate knows why. In verse 10, we read that they were jealous of Jesus and Pilate knew it. Pilate knew that they only wanted to kill this guy because they didn't like him. And Pilate was no fan of doing the Jews' favor. He was not in a, in a position where he wanted to make them happy. They annoyed him. He was bothered by them. He didn't like this people. 
And he didn't want to satisfy their bloodlust. Give me a reason to let you go. You can almost hear the internal thoughts of God the governor. Give me a reason to say to these Sanhedrin, to these chief priests, no. I'd love to say no to them. Jesus, give me a reason and I'll say no. And yet Jesus speaks no word. That's not entirely true. He does reply to Pilate at some points, but in this moment where our text takes up the story and where Pilate says to Jesus, what do you have to say to all of these accusations? All of these obviously false accusations. Obviously these accusations are made only because they're jealous of you. Jesus, speak the word and I'll let you go. And yet Jesus offers no word. Jesus gives no defense, no plea, no groveling, no weeping, just a committed silence. Stand for a moment and see all of the people that have passed through that room, all of the people crying on their knees, begging Pilate for deliverance, and here stands a man facing certain death who will not open his mouth in his own defense. Surely that makes him unique, in all of the people that Pilate has ever sentenced to death, that makes Jesus distinct. Indeed, the mystery of this amazement that Pilate offers in response to Jesus' silence deepens when we listen carefully to the use of this word. The word for amazement is a strong one. Indeed, Matthew, recording this same event, says that Pilate was greatly amazed. The word mega is used there. He was mega amazed. It's a word that has in it a hint of fear. It is a word that has in it a sense of the miraculous, of the divine, of seeing something so strange, so out of sorts, so profoundly unexpected that it shocks you. That it shocks you. Jesus is amazed. Same word in Matthew 8 verse 10 when he's confronted with the faith of the centurion. I've never, I've never seen such faith in Israel, Jesus says. The crowds were amazed at Jesus when they saw his miracles, Matthew 15 verse 31. You can understand that. Jesus does amazing things. The blind are given sight. The lame are made to, to, to walk. We would stand amazed if we saw someone who we had known all our life was unable to move because of the lameness of their legs suddenly walking because of a word from this man. I think of Legion. You remember Legion at the Decapolis, the man that was was it possessed by so many people. After he was put in his right mind and he went back to the cities of the Decapolis and he preached the good news of the gospel, the people who had known him to be enslaved and chained and under the dominion of the demons were amazed. They were stunned. They were startled. They couldn't explain it. They had no answer for it. How is this possible? It's a word that describes strange, unexpected, surprising, and very startling truths. Which means that Pilate, when he stands amazed at Jesus, is more than just intrigued. He's more than just amused. He's more than just query, curious about why it is that Jesus is silent. And it means that Jesus' silence was more than just resignation or despair, that it was purposeful and intentional. It was surprising and startling. There was in his silence a light that shone of the great glory of God in that dark place. 
But that shouldn't surprise us, we who know the Scriptures. For this was prophesied about by Isaiah. Facing death and the cruelest of death, Jesus has nothing to defend Himself, to stop the process, and to prevent the awfulness from descending upon Him. Not because He's resigned and despairing, but because He had come this very thing to do. Repeatedly we read in the book of Mark that Jesus foretold His death and resurrection. Long before this day came, He said it was coming. In Mark 8, in the verses 31 and following, and then in Mark 9, in the verses 30 to 32, and then in Mark 14, in the verses 8 and 18. We read in Luke 9, verse 51, that Jesus set His face towards Jerusalem. It's a phrase that means that He was determined to go there in order to die. In John 10, verse 18, Jesus says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And Hebrews 12, verse 2, reminds us that he despised the shame of the cross and willingly suffered these things. You see, that is what his silence means. That is what his silence in this moment expresses. His silence is his commitment, his resolve, his desire to fulfill the very thing for which he had come in the flesh to do the thing he had been asked of his Father to die for his people. And therefore, as Isaiah prophesied, as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. Jesus here fulfills that word from Isaiah That word that describes His willing suffering, His commitment to dying for you. Let's not miss what is happening in that moment of silence. For a moment, let this penetrate your heart and your soul. Consider for a moment what Jesus is about to do. Stand there in the court of Pilate and see your Savior with his mouth closed, unwilling to defend himself, knowing full well what lies before him. What lies before him is something we can never truly grasp, is it? The depths of God's wrath, so profound, so deep. The pain of God's cup of judgment, so bitter and so destructive, our Lord Jesus Christ will suffer in ways that we will never know. Or sometimes we we have a hint of it, don't we? In the same way, we don't always find ourselves in a fire, but we do find ourselves smelling it smoke. We don't find ourselves in the fire of God's wrath, But we do sometimes in our lives smell it smoke, don't we? Don't we struggle with that sometimes in our own person when bad things happen to us and we begin to wonder if God's against us? We begin to wonder if we've done something to offend the Lord. Is He pouring out His judgment, His deserved judgment? Our own guilty consciences convict us that we don't have any expectation of blessing from the Lord, that we deserve nothing but His judgment. Sometimes in this life we wonder, we doubt, we question, does God really love me? Or does He hate me for what I've done again and again and again? 
And yet that's exactly why Jesus came, isn't it? That's exactly why he's silent at this moment. Because he came to lift you out of that fear, out of that grief, out of that judgment, out of that deserved punishment, so that you might be saved. Which means you understand that when Jesus is silent in our text, he's silent for you. He refuses to defend himself so that he can defend you. He accepts the injustice so that you might be justified. He willingly surrenders that you might be secured. And he drinks the cup of his Father's wrath, suffering the torments of hell in excruciating pain so that you never would. That's the significance of this silence. His silence is your salvation. And that shines through, that, that pierces the darkness of this place of injustice, this place of Pilate's power, of Rome's might, of its cruel oppression, of its desire to cause suffering in the lives of so many. Into this place comes one so very different, so very unlike the other, cowering and calling out, begging, pleading people, seeking deliverance. Here comes a man who comes in power, who comes with purpose, who comes to save his people. Pilate is suddenly confronted, not just with a strange character, but with the very light of the gospel embodied in Jesus. And its light pierces his heart and his mind so that he stands amazed. Who is this man he wants to know? How is this possible? He can't make sense of it. He is amazed. We need to understand the meaning of that amazement, not as it's meant in Pilate's heart. Pilate was no believer. He didn't know the Lord. He didn't really stand amazed as he ought before Jesus Christ. But, but Mark, maybe Peter behind him, use this word and connect this word for us to another passage. They allude to another passage so that we can join in the rightful amazement of Jesus Christ. As we read from Isaiah 52, the opening of the servant song, which ends at 53 verse 12, we read the opening verses of that song that prophesy about the great suffering that Jesus would endure and the reason for why he would endure it and indeed how we would respond to it. As we read in Isaiah 52, verse 4, or chapter 52, verse 14, as many were astonished at you. And why were they astonished? Astonished here is not a positive thing. Astonished here, you might say, is, is more of a revolting thing, an angry thing. Why is it? Because his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Those are easy words to read. They were awful words for Jesus to endure. They are words that prophesy that his body would be beaten to within an inch of its life. That his face and his hands and his back would be so scarred and brutally mistreated and beaten and bruised and swollen. 
He would be beaten to a pulp so that he hardly looked human anymore. His body would be so tortured and twisted. And so twisted, so offensive would the visual be that that we would be astonished. We would be grossed out, triggered, whatever word you want to use. The depths of his suffering would be so deep that they would revolt us. That's how deep our Savior had to go. That's how profound His suffering had to be for us. And as many who saw that appearance so marred beyond human semblance would be astonished, well, says the prophet, so shall He sprinkle many nations. There's a connection here. Many are going to be revolted at Jesus. They're going to turn away from Him. But many are going to be sprinkled by Him. Sprinkled here is a very technical term. It's a word used in the Old Testament to describe a priestly duty. A priestly duty that involved sprinkling sacrifices, sprinkling the furniture of the the, the temple, sprinkling the high priest himself, sprinkling the people of God with the blood of the sacrifice. Indeed, it is a word that speaks of uh, the sanctifying ministry of the sacrificial lamb. The blood of the sacrifice, whatever that sacrifice was, was sprinkled to cover sin, to cleanse from sin. That's what this word means. Many would be sprinkled. That doesn't mean that many will get wet. That doesn't mean that many will get dirty. That means many will be forgiven. Many will be washed clean. Many sins will be covered. Many sinners will be saved, says Isaiah. Many will turn away. Many will reject Him. Many will say, no thank you, not for me. I don't want that kind of a Messiah. If your Messiah has to be so weak, so broken, so brutalized, I want nothing to do with Him. People today want a Messiah that is heroic. People want a Messiah that can appear in a Marvel movie. People want a Messiah like Israel wanted King Saul. Good-looking, powerful, dynamic, rich. The kind of person that can inspire us and make us feel better about ourselves. And we come to the people with this brutalized, this ugly, crucified Messiah. Many are astonished. But many, but many of the nations, mind you, not of the people of Israel, of the Gentiles, of the nations will be sprinkled redeemed, purchased. Indeed, kings, we're told, will shut their mouths, says Isaiah. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they've not heard, they understand. Can you not see why Peter, why Mark, thought this was a passage connected to what just happened? Not only does in verse 7 it say that he opened not his mouth, But here in verse 15, we're told that kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them. They see, Pilate had never been told about the gospel, had he? He had never heard about the coming of the Messiah to save his people. Are you the king of the Jews? You have said it is so, says Jesus. And Pilate is confronted. He sees it before him. And his mouth is shut. He is amazed. He's amazed. The very word that the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses in verse 15. 
In verse 15, it says in the Greek translation, so, so shall he amaze. Same word as Mark uses. Amaze. And Mark says, see, that's what I'm talking about. That prophecy, that thing that, that God spoke of in the servant song of Isaiah 53, that's what's happening here, says Mark. You remember how the Lord said people would stand amazed? Well, Pilate's standing amazed. Mark's not suggesting that Pilate is responding the way he's supposed to. Mark's not saying that there's an equal sign between Isaiah 52 verse 15 and Mark 15 verse 5. Not even a a dash with two arrows at the end where you go, wait a second, let's, let's interplay these passages together. He's alluding to it. He's saying, wait a second, let me call something to you to mind. It's like, it's like somebody using a song, a line from a song that we knew as our, in our youth. And, and when we hear that line, we don't have to hear anything else. It just brings the whole moment, the whole situation. High school, it brings back life in that time. It brings back the smells and the, it just, it brings us all back. Mark uses a word that all of a sudden brings all of Isaiah 53 flooding into the minds of his readers. And he says, do you not remember how God said people would stand amazed? Oh yes. Oh yes. The Lord through Isaiah is describing the suffering servant of salvation and how the people will respond. Those who are redeemed will respond. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Those who see the truth of who Jesus is, some will be offended. Some will be offended and be astonished and say no. But some will see and be amazed. And those who see and are amazed are those who are redeemed, those who are sprinkled by the blood of this Savior. This Savior who suffers terribly, but whose suffering saves. This saving work of the Messiah, which will stun, amaze, and stupefy those who knew nothing of of God or of His commandments, or of His commitment to save sinners, who when they hear that this is their Messiah, will stand in awe. Indeed, don't we, don't we see that happening in our lives? How often don't we read about some hardened sinner who hears the good news of the gospel and is overwhelmed by the majesty and glory of it all? Do you not read in these stories, these testimonials, of the remarkable way where suddenly God's power just opens the eyes to see a wonder and a glory? Just reading the memoirs of Christopher Ewan and his mother. And his mother describes the beginning of the Lord stirring in her life on a train to Kentucky. And how suddenly the world was brighter. Life was better. Suddenly there was joy and hope. She was amazed at this God who loved her. And isn't that the right, isn't amazement, startled, stunning, wonder and awe, isn't that the right response to this great, glorious, good news? Think of it, the incarnate Son of God took on flesh to suffer for you. Miserable sinners that we are. Our cruelty, our carelessness, our selfishness, and our stupidity. And He still loves us. Would you suffer? 
for the worst of sinners. We're not even particularly nice to people we don't like in church. Would you suffer for you? And yet Jesus drinks the depths of God's wrath and experiences the brutality of this grief. The weight of his suffering ringing from him. The cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which should leave us with closed mouths, stunned hearts. What words are there to explain this love? Should we not just stand amazed? And yet too often our passion runs cold. And our amazement fizzles and fades. That we struggle with amazement is obvious. I mean, worship, coming to church, isn't always our idea of a good time, is it? This afternoon, we'll find ourselves busier with other things, things that are a little more important to us. It's not to us an amazing. We don't stand amazed. We go, i got other things to do. Sacrificing in our lives for the blessing of others isn't always our idea of a good time. We don't always say, man, I'm so happy I can serve you. Have I told you about what Jesus did for me? Our focus is often more or less, more, uh, our, our focus rather is more often on less serious, less important, less significant, and far more selfish things. Just ask yourself, do you tell your children, family, and friends how amazed you are at God's love for you? Is your faith and your spirituality the expression of a heart on fire? What about your coworkers? What about your neighbors? Do they know? Do they say, there's a guy, there's a girl amazed at Jesus? And why is that? Why do we struggle with amazement? Do we not see the enormity of His love for us? Do we not realize how great is His grace to us? To see Jesus is to worship Him. Think about Thomas after the resurrection. I will not believe unless I see Him. And then Thomas sees Jesus and worships my Lord and my God. Now, we don't see Jesus in the same way. We see Jesus with the eyes of faith. But to see Jesus with the eyes of faith is to surely worship Him. So maybe it is that we don't always see Jesus. Maybe we don't see Jesus because we don't always realize how much we need Him. I mean, the devil, the world, and even our own flesh work very hard to blind us. To keep our focus on other things. To keep us away from the glory of God. And more on the Instagram reels. The TikTok uh, scrolling. And isn't it true that the bigger we get, the smaller Jesus gets? The more we are amazed at ourselves, the less we are amazed at Him. You see... If we would be amazed, and we all desire to be amazed. If we would be encouraged and equipped. If we would stand in awe of what it is that God has done for us. 
if during this season of Lent, as we prepare for Easter, Good Friday and Easter Sunday at the end of next month, if we would be amazed, if our hearts would be filled with wonder, if our lives would be given the sense of purpose and power that such amazement brings, if we were to respond as the Word of God says the people of God will respond, then we need to do two things. Then during this season of Lent, we need to realize two things. We need to commit to studying these two things, to learning these two things. Number one, how not great we are. Oh, that's going to run countercultural. That's going to run against our own desires. We all want to be told how great we are. We all want to be boosted and we want to be able to boast. And... But if you want to be amazed, if you want to stand in awe, if you want to worship, you're going to have to realize how not great you are. But then you're going to have to realize how great He is. You're going to have to stand in awe of Him and of His sacrifice on your behalf. You're going to have to see Jesus. The glory of Jesus on the cross. Let's commit to doing that over these next number of weeks. Let's begin this Lenten season this way by saying, Lord, turn my eyes from the empty, meaningless, and foolish world and turn my eyes to Jesus. Everyone wants to be amazed. Well, here's the greatest glory you'll ever see. The love of God in the flesh for sinners like you and me. Let's thank Him for it in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of Your love for us. We indeed, Lord, marvel that You would include us within the company of the redeemed. Lord, we know that our hearts can become rather complacent and our passion can run low. Lord, in these next number of weeks, as we meditate upon the cross of Calvary and the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, as we see some of these allusions in the New Testament to Old Testament passages, may we be willing to see the truth about who we are so that we might see the truth of who Jesus is. And may our passion be fueled by your love. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.